Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. You know, with all the weddings that I officiated this summer, I made a point of writing down the names of the bride and and groom in my little script, you know, like, do you, Stephanie, take Ollie to be your dot, 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 you know? And I mean, I knew these people, but I mean, that would be awful if I (laughs) said the wrong name uh, at the wrong time. And so um, I know of a pastor who had a moment of forgetfulness and didn't know the groom as, as much and thought at the beginning of the ceremony, I know his name is either... James or John, I'm just going to have to ask him. So he, so he mutes his mic and leans over and whispered, is your name James or John? And the, the groom said, James. And uh, that's when the bride uh, elbowed him and said, stop it, your name is John. Um, there's, there's something in a name. And uh, it would be interesting to even pass the mic now and, and have everybody answer the question, like, how did you get your name? And does it have a meaning? And oh, do you have a nickname? And how did you get that? And uh, this summer, we're in a series called uh, This Is My Story, where we've heard not only personal stories of people from Knack or, or how to share your story, or like last week when Rocky shared about our collective historical story, uh, one being of exiles. Uh, that was so good. And this week I want to share the story of someone who, who doesn't get a ton of Bible space. Uh, he's not one of the major players, if you will. If we, if we did it on Paul or Peter or, or, or David, it would easily take weeks to do justice to their story. But this guy, this guy who had two names, he got his name changed partway through his story, and, and two different, very different meanings to his name. More on that in a minute. This is the story of, of someone in the Old Testament named Mephibosheth. Will you say that with me? Mephibosheth. Now, will you say it 10 times fast? No. Mephibosheth, okay? Now, Many of you come to church sometimes and maybe you, get, you feel a little insecure. You feel like maybe you don't know all the Bible stories as well as the person sitting next to you. But today, most of y'all are on the same page because most of y'all don't know the tragic and beautiful story of Mephibosheth. <laughs> it's a story that starts for us in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. And if anyone still likes to follow along in their Bible or in their Bible app, you can turn there. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Here's what the Bible says. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. Now, let's just 
pause for a second because it's very important to understand the power of the story through the context of these characters. Okay, so King Saul, right? He's the first king of Israel, the current king. His son is Jonathan. It's important to know. Then we've got our character, Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And then we're going to have David. David is going to succeed Saul as the new king. By the way, that David, David and Goliath David, the David we just sung about. So these are our characters. Now, imagine, five years old, okay? You're, you're just simply out playing in the courtyard, having a, a fun day, doing whatever privileged royal kids do, you know, eating grasshoppers or making mud pies or I don't know, probably not, whatever. Just hanging out, having a good time. The palace doors burst open. People are in pandemonium, screaming, hollering. And you're like, what's going on? And they say that your dad and your granddad have been killed in a battle. Now that's, that's a bad start to a day for anybody, especially a kid much less a five-year-old, right? But it gets worse. They're in a panic because David was on his way to the palace to assume power. Now, why would that be a problem? Because up until fairly recently, at least in the scope of history, any time in a monarchy, the family lines change, what happens to that family? Yeah, they get unlived, right? They they get killed off. Why? Because you don't want to have a potential heir to the throne alive. I mean, if Princess Bride taught us nothing else, um, you don't want a whole life of practicing a speech, you know, you killed my father, uh, prepare to die, you know? And uh, everybody's freaking out in the palace, thinking they're going to get killed, including Mephibosheth. Why? Because his grandfather, Saul, his dad was David, who was, should have been next in line. And now both of them are dead in battle, which makes Mephibosheth Israel's number one most wanted. Okay? And something else to understand in the context of this five-year-old is that, you know, David is iconic at this point. Chronologically speaking, when, when this occurred in Scripture, David had already killed Goliath. He'd already wrestled a lion. In fact, David had uh, many battles in which he was a hero, one of Saul's top generals, and gone out and slain armies. In fact, um, there was a scripture in the Old Testament where people sang a song, and it was like, Saul has killed the thousands, while David woo, has killed the tens of thousands. It, was, you know, it went viral before they knew what viral meant. David was iconic. Something else, David and Jonathan, Mephibosheth's dad, were besties. Uh, it, it, it's almost like David could have been like, you know, a hero to Mephibosheth. With his poster is on the wall. But because of the relationship with Jonathan, he could have even been like Uncle David, you know? And so Mephibosheth is understanding, my dad is dead, killed in battle. My grandfather, the king, is dead. And now David, well, it's going to be okay, right? It's Uncle David, Unky David. And, uh, 
And people looking after him are like, no, 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 no. It's not Uncle David. It's, it's Darth David, okay? You need, he wants to kill you. What do you mean, not Uncle David? I'm sorry, kid. This is a lot for a five-year-old to take in. But like, uh, the world just changed overnight, okay? Your friends are now your hunters. Everyone's in a full panic. Now, why do first responders and, and airline hosts and 911 operators want you to remain calm and not panic. Because sometimes in the panic, something worse happens than the crisis. How many, how many trampling deaths have there, have there been because people panic? Well, in this panic, the, the nurse picks him up, little Mephibosheth, and begins to run. And as we continue in verse 4, she, she drops him and breaks both his legs, and he becomes crippled. Five years old. They, they don't have time to set a splint. They don't have time to do anything. They just, they just run with him. And they go to a place called Lodabar, which we'll talk about in a little bit. His dead dad, his grandfather's dead. David, he now believes, is coming to kill him. Both legs broken. You're in hiding in a place that you've never been, his whole world at five has been flipped upside down. It's, it's like the opposite of Fresh Prince. Very few of us have had a crisis quite like that direct. Um, but some of you, I'll bet, have had a Mephibosheth moment in your life where you're sitting there and everything's fine, you're hanging out in the palace. Everything's good. And then all of a sudden, the doctor gives you a report you didn't expect. Um, you're on a ladder, and then you're not. And one day you feel healthy, and the next day, everything has turned around. And, and maybe it's that someone who you thought you could trust violated your trust. Maybe it was a relationship that you thought would go to the distance, but it crumbled down around you in, in such a short time. And it's just, it's rocked your whole world. And in that emotion, maybe, maybe you can begin to relate to where Mephibosheth is at. Now, cut to years go by and nothing happens. He, he doesn't get healed. He doesn't get helped. He's just broken. That's the story of Mephibosheth. But one day, the Bible says, in, in, second chap, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, one day the Bible says, King David, he says, is there anyone left in the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now, based off what we know about killing off the last monarchy behind you, that's a weird statement, it's, but it's interesting. We know that Jonathan and David were actually besties. At one point, David had been anointed by an Old Testament prophet named Samuel. That's what we're reading, 2 Samuel. The anointing was that David was to be the king of Israel. Now, Jonathan's aware of this. Uh, you understand in terms of, of a worldly succession, this was supposed to be Jonathan's rightful throne. But Jonathan knew God's calling trumped tradition. And he may have even known that his own dad, Saul, was never supposed to have been king in the first place. 
He was, he was never blessed or anointed or called by God. And so Jonathan is so cool about this, so trusting in God's ways and calling, that when he was alive and he talked to David, he said, listen, when you become king, not if, when you become king, would you show kindness to my family? And David said, as surely as the Lord lives, I will show kindness to your family. And David makes this covenant promise to Jonathan. And the Bible records in 2 Samuel 9 that one day, I don't know, I don't know why, I don't know what triggered his, his memory. Maybe it's the anniversary of Jonathan's death. Maybe, maybe it's that they were out doing something that he and Jonathan normally like to do together. And for whatever reason, it, it brings to mind for David, this promise, his love for his, his dear lost friend. And he says, is there anyone left who I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Anybody left? And so they summon this guy named Ziba, who was one of Saul's former servants. And they asked him a question. And, and, and Ziba replies to King David and says, well, yes, there is one of Jonathan's sons still alive, but he's crippled in both feet. Notice, notice he kind of minimizes his whole life as this, yeah, well, you don't really want him. Uh, maybe it's a way of kind of protecting him. I don't know, but it's just like, yeah, but he's a crippled kid. And you got to know at this time, in this day and age, in this culture, to have your legs broken, like you understand, right? There's no, there's no worker's comp. There's no wheelchairs. There's no rehab. There's no personal support workers. There's nothing for them. And so society would, in many ways, push him to the fringes and consider him kind of like a, a burden, like he's kind of worthless. Now, thankfully today, we understand that's just absurd uh, because we know that any physical limitation placed upon you has no bearing on God's ability to work through you. Oh, let me say that again. Any physical limitation placed upon you has no bearing on God's ability to work through you. And in fact, many times we can point to examples where he actually works through you in a greater way. So we understand that an absurd notion, but in the context of this story, it's important to note just how quickly Ziba sort of brushes him aside. Like, yeah, but you know, um, he's kind of half a person. And David says, well, where is he? I want to see this kid. And Ziba replies, he's out in Lodabar at the house of Maker. And David says, well, go get him. Now, Lodabar uh, was a place that means literally the place of no bread. It's considered arid and dry, a desolate place, a place way out. You, you could almost say that, you know, Mephibosheth was placed in the witness protection program, but it's not Aruba. It's, it's Lodabar, the place of no bread, the barren place. Now, here's where the name change comes in the story. In, in 1 Chronicles 8, it's important to note that in the genealogy of King Saul, Mephibosheth was not his actual given name. His, his given name at birth was Meribal. And, and what's in a name? Well, here's what it meant. Meribal means an opponent of Baal. Baal, of course, was an Old Testament 
false god. So it's as if his father, Jonathan, named his son Maribel, like saying, you are of royal lineage. You are an opponent of false gods. You are a warrior as part of a bigger kingdom. It's like if I named, you know, one of my daughters, uh, something like demon hunter (laughs) or Satan crusher. It's not bad. I like Rosa too, but (laughs) demon hunter anyways, but Maribel got changed to Mephibosheth, which means, are you ready for this? Son of shame or shameful thing. Oh, there's something in a name. So Mephibosheth has lived many years out in Lodabar, and we don't know how many years. The Bible's not super clear on this, but we, we know that he's, he's grown, and he's not a little kid anymore. And Ziba comes to the door, and he knocks, and he says, hey, it's Ziba. Uh, I'm here from the palace. Uh, don't shoot the messenger, but um, King David wants to see you. Is this a good thing for Mephibosheth? Does he think it's a good thing? Is he like, oh, sweet. It's about dang time. I've been waiting for this moment. No, it's like the personification of all his anxiety and fear and worry that haunted him for years because he had to grow up fearing David. He was told to fear David. And and he's thinking, it's David's fault that I'm out here in this desolate place. It's David's fault that I'm a fugitive. It's David's fault that my legs are broke. It's it's David, and now he wants me dead. Um, They've been telling me for years he's coming, and now... The time is here. And this is where the story takes a twist. We see David's response to be quite different than what Mephibosheth had thought. We're going to pick it up here in verse 7, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Mephibosheth had been brought before David, and here's what the Bible says. Don't be afraid. David said, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all of the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? What a terrible thing to say about yourself. I'm a dead dog. But then you can kind of see after all these years of hiding, um, maybe it made Mephibosheth think of himself as worthless. And I wonder how many of us have found ourselves in a place of just feeling worthless uh, or unworthy of something, unworthy of love maybe, or perhaps feeling inadequate for the task that's been put before you. For Mephibosheth, in this moment, as he's receiving this blessing from King David, everything that he had believed, everything that he had known, everything that he had uh, internalized about David, turns out was wrong. And he had to be confused, trying to figure out what's going on. He had, he had to have been waiting for the ax to fall, you know, quite literally, And it didn't happen. Everything that he thought was about to happen, everything that he thought David stood for, everything that he was sure David wanted to do to him was wrong. And in the same way, I wonder how many of us have have banished ourselves spiritually to a place like Lodabar, a desolate place, where we begin to 
believe and internalize things that we think about God. And we think, oh, he's mad at me because I haven't, you know, been doing what I probably should be doing. He must be upset at me. He's just waiting to drop a hammer on me. I know what's coming. Or maybe it's that you've carried guilt for years, maybe for something that wasn't even your fault. Uh, Maybe even because of your assumptions that God is mad at you, you think you'll beat him to the punch and, and start being mad at God. I know all kinds of folks where that's their story. And what I'm here to tell you is that God is not angry with you. God is not ashamed of you. You see, in the same way that David had a, had a counterintuitive, a, a different outcome for Mephibosheth, God's desire for you, are you ready for this? Is to bless you, is to, is to bring you hope, to give you what he calls the abundant life. I mean, talk about a story with a twist. So, so David says to Ziba, Ziba, come here. I'm, I'm going to give Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, all of his land, all of Saul, Saul's former land. So think about this. He gives Mephibosheth all of King Saul's land, not like a corner garden, right? But he gives him everything that had belonged to his grandfather, the king. And I mean, a vast amount of property. And then David says to Ziba, oh, and you and your household, Ziba, all 35 of of you and your servants, you're actually going to serve Mephibosheth now. And then, I love this, verse 11, the Bible says, and Mephibosheth ate regularly at the king's table like one of the king's own sons. Like, how about that? This kid from five having all this terrible stuff happen to him, all these rotten things, and all of a sudden, it gets flipped again. This this beautiful story of restoration, and David brings him to a place of honor and power. And we love a story like this, don't we? An ending like that, a story of redemption, like, like, you know, when someone who never got a chance, but they had a great voice, and then they get this audition on a stage and sing in front of a few judges and then boom, boom, you know, four chair turns, right? We love that kind of, that kind of redemptive story. And, uh, or how about when, you know, maybe tragedy strikes a family and you see a family like lose a father and, and all of a sudden mom's doing everything she can to, has two jobs and she's trying to keep it all together and the house starts to fall down around them and it, it's in disrepair and they don't have the money. But the, then the community swoops in and they take this, you know, this broken down shack and they create a castle out of this thing in one week. And then, you know, they stand in the street and they say, move that bus. And people are crying in the street and we're all crying on the couch. Why? Because we love these stories of of mercy and redemption. Because those types of stories, this story of Mephibosheth and this little boy who had a terrible beginning yet ends up with this beautiful ending. That kind of story is written, etched on our very DNA of our souls, I believe, because you've got to understand that we are Mephibosheth, 
okay? You see this story of Mephibosheth, it's, it's a true story from the Old Testament, but also it's an illustration of what Christ has done for you and done for me. What do you mean I'm Mephibosheth? I want to be David. Nah, man, you're Mephibosheth. What do you mean? Well, first of all, we are all broken and fallen. I don't mean physically necessarily, although that could be part of your story. But some of you in particular may have, you know, a, 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 a dis, uh, you know, a physical ailment. But every single one of us are fallen and broken spiritually. Romans says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in the same way that Mephibosheth has fallen and was broken, there's just no way around it. Like, like we too are fallen and broken. Second thing is the great thing about this story is Mephibosheth wasn't just left there, okay? We are pursued by the king. Just as Mephibosheth was pursued by King David, we're pursued by a king, not a king that's here on earth that can grant us land or some wealth or a mansion. We are pursued by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're pursued by King Jesus who can save our souls and give us eternal life. And, and the verse after the most famous verse in the Bible, in John 3, verse 17, the Bible says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn us, as some of y'all think. He actually sent his son not to condemn us, but to love us and to save us, that none should perish. So, so we were fallen and broken but we were pursued by the king. And then the, the third thing is this, the king's table covers our sin. And remember verse 11, it says that Mephibosheth ate regularly at the king's table, like one of the king's own sons. Listen, when he sat at the king's table, his crippled, broken condition was covered by the king's table. And I, I don't mean that just literally, like it, you know, it physically covered his legs. I mean the authority and love and grace of the king covered his wrong identity. And when people looked at Mephibosheth, they didn't see a broken young man. They saw someone who was of power, who was of position, who had been granted access to the king's table and to the king. They saw someone who sat there like one of the king's own sons. Let me tell you something, church. The sacrifice of Jesus on that cross, his blood that was shed for us, covers our spiritually broken condition. And we are made whole and complete at the king's table. Oh, you said amen at the right point. Underneath the power of Jesus' sacrifice and forgiveness of our sins, we too are made like the king's daughter, the king's son, adopted into a royal family with all the privileges and authority that come with it. And some of y'all may think that you are broken and useless, but God says that you are chosen and invited to the table 
In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said these words. He said, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. We aren't David in the story. Jesus is David. And and we get to be Mephibosheth. We were broken and in hiding and called shameful. And now we eat regularly at the king's table. There is a little known movie that I just love. It's the story of Antoine Fisher. It was directed by uh, Denzel Washington. He was abandoned as a child, raised in foster homes and group homes. And the trauma of his life has made him angry and ashamed. And uh, he lashes out at others. It gets him kicked out of the Navy. Uh, The movie's kind of like a detective story, looking for his family of origin. And during this time of looking for his real family, he keeps having this regular occurring dream of being led into a family reunion where there's this banquet laid before him with pancakes, always with pancakes. He had to have pancakes. Little did he know that there was an extended family of aunts and uncles and grandmas who had been looking for him as well. Watch, watch this. Hey, what are you doing? I'm your Uncle Horace. Get out of the way, Horace. Come on, baby. Oh, look at you. I'm your Aunt Edda, baby. Oh, me, me. Oh, I'm your cousin Jeanette. Oh, Can I be your Aunt Edda? What are you doing, baby? Oh, Lord Jesus. This is my wife, T. How you doing? Good looking. I'm your cousin Eddie. My dad named me after your father. It's my brother Ray. What's up, dog? What's cracking? Hey, I'm your cousin Jason, man. What's up? All right, boys. Open up. All right. That's a picture of what Jesus is offering to us. 
And when we're invited to the table, it means you're actually invited to be family. And with all the rights and privileges and love that comes with that, the communion table is another picture of this, an opportunity not only to remember, remember the cost, the price of our forgiveness and our healing and our adoption paid for you through the blood broken body of Jesus. But it's also a picture of a, of a glorious day to come. Jesus said at the Last Supper, I'm not going to eat or drink again until we have a family reunion like no other. Uh, and a banquet to end all banquets, pancakes included. As we celebrate communion, um, we do it in different ways at NAC. Sometimes we pass it right to you. But I think today it would be appropriate that you would come. Um, Because here's the thing, everyone is invited to the table, everyone. Invited to bring your brokenness, bring your shame to the table, everyone. But you have to accept the invitation, don't you? Uh, You have to actually come to the party, you have to receive it. So, So during this song, Um, Come, receive the bread, the juice. Uh, There's a gluten-free option here in the middle. Um, Take it back to your seat. And in a moment of, of private worship and gratitude, just thank God that you've been invited to the table of the King. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness that we've sung about all morning. Thank you for the truth, the inherent beauty in this story that comes from your scripture. And and I pray that those truths would just become so real to us today. And in the same way that Mephibosheth could not do anything to earn David's favor and the blessing uh, that David gave him, Um, there's nothing we can do to earn your favor, God, to earn your goodness and forgiveness. It's it's all who you know. And and when we know you, Jesus, we're in the family. Uh, Would there be those today who might even join your family, Lord? Maybe in the quiet of this moment or even as they came to receive communion for the first time, They said, I want to be part of the king's family. We'd love to pray with you if that is you this morning. You're such a loved people. Hope you feel it. I I want to thank you for those who are watching church. I want to thank you for coming to church on a beautiful August Sunday, but more than watching church, more than coming to a church, let's go. Be the church. God bless you.